that was so warm and affectionate. I think it's way more affectionate than the welcome that Eric Fleming gave me last week. I think you probably heard him affectionately refer to me as Little Boots. Yes, it's true. I have a smaller than average shoe size, and I'm getting okay with that. But it triggered a memory for me that at the time I was not quite ready for. Uh, it was football season. It's like seven years ago. And a good friend of mine was sitting in the audience, and she had two guys sitting behind her, and she heard one of the guys say, man, don't you think Levi kind of looks like Tom Brady? And the other one said, yeah, it's not too bad, right? It's a good start. And he said, yeah, but he's so much smaller, it's more like baby Brady. <laughs> of course, that got back to me. I am not tall enough to compete on a fourth grade basketball team, so it's pretty <laughs> truthful, but it's not hard to see where that compliment starts and where it stops. I do want to remind you, this is church. Confession is a normal practice. If there's anyone in here who maybe said that comment, I will forget. All the sinners are in the 930. They didn't confess either. Uh, hey, it really is so good to be here with you. I was on staff full-time here for 10 years, and in the past year and a half, I've uh, become a general contractor uh, with a good friend of mine uh, and business partner, Cameron Rigmaiden. You see him play guitar up on stage here all of the time. And I just love working with my hands. And over the past year and a half, it's been profound for my family and for myself and our relationship with the church. Uh, to be totally candid, the church, as it should be, is a spiritual hospital for sinners, and it's made up of imperfect people, including myself. And I started to feel a resentment for others and a resentment for myself. I started to notice that my identity became all tied up with, am I paid to be good, or do I actually believe in this? And over the year and a half, by God's grace, I've been able to untangle a lot of that. And I can stand before you today better than before, believing more than ever that the church is God's redemptive plan to rescue humanity, and the gates of hell are not going to prevail against it. Yeah. I want to tell you about the best decision I ever made. Uh, it was when I had convinced Katie, who's now my wife, to marry me. And I remember thinking when we were signing the marriage certificate, I hope this ink dries so fast she doesn't have a chance to think about how I'm getting the better end of the deal here. Uh, and she is out of my league for so, so many reasons. Uh, one of them being that she has a partial tattoo sleeve. She's pretty cool, cooler than me. And uh, she's got a bunch of other tattoos. Uh, I want to talk to you a little bit about some tat stats. So over the last 20 or 30 years, the perspective of tattoos has been changing. Like before, it used to be just for, you know, service members, rock stars, and biker gangs. Well, a study was released recently that showed there is a new emerging demographic that has more enthusiasm for tattoos than ever before, and it's moms. Which is so weird because I remember my mom saying to me, hey, just so you know, if you get a tattoo, I'm probably not going to help with your college. Tables have turned. Uh, and even more interestingly, there's this fact that the second fastest growing demographic that is enthusiastic for tattoos are seniors. Yeah. Woo. We got, got a couple seniors here. Uh, and this tattoo artist I was watching an interview of, he was explaining how the, uh, that his highest paying clients are between 70 and like 
1985. And actually, he was interviewing uh, his highest paying client. Her name was Donna. She's 88. And she said, you know what? The hardest part about getting a tattoo is in your 80s is finding the skin that has elasticity. <laughs> yeah, wow. I'm not going to go there. Our, yeah, but I'll tell you this. Let's go to 2 Corinthians 3. Are we beginning to commend ourselves again, or do we need, like some people, letters of recommendation to you from you? You yourselves are our letter written on our hearts, known and read by everyone. You show that you are a letter from Christ, the result of our ministry written not with ink, but written with the spirit of the living God, not on tablets of stone, but on tablets of the human hearts. I want to talk to you today about a tattoo that is deeper than skin. Because God wants to put his mark on your heart. In 2 Corinthians, Paul is getting right at a significant heart issue. You can sense the sarcasm. He says, are we beginning to commend ourselves again? In other words, it's like he's saying, "Uh uh-oh, are you starting to think you're cool? So here's Paul. He's the most influential early church leader This is about 30 to 40 years A.D., and he's writing a letter to a community that's off of the coast of what we would call Greece, the Church of Corinth. And what's kind of clunky about us going through this letter is it's like reading a 20-page thread of text messages, and they're all sent messages. We don't get to see any of the received messages. It's just like an obsessive girlfriend, blue, 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 blue. And that's all we get. So then you're trying to read between the lines. Okay, what is this about? So Paul is addressing this challenge to his credentials. So he has been faithfully serving the church of Corinth. And yet there are leaders that are emerging in this church. And they're getting influence because of their success in the community, how much they have achieved, and their charisma. And Paul is just not impressed. So this is what he does. He says, nah, that doesn't work. Don't commend yourself. You're starting to think you're cool again. Big deal. You've got letters of recommendation. You've got influencer status on Instagram. You've got the blue check. You cut Elon Musk a check every month for your status. I'm not impressed. And here's why the church would have felt so convicted by this is because they knew that every single time that Paul had visited them, he was either coming from a shipwreck, being beaten, or being in prison. None of which are sexy credentials at all. It's nothing luxurious. So Paul is pointing out that there is a tendency for every single one of us to make our validation about what others think And sometimes even ourselves think of who we are. And we've all seen success syndrome. This is not new to us. You know, uh, you've got someone who is chasing down the next cool career, the next big check, the next big house. And it is a never-ending hamster wheel that leads to all of their friends and family gathered around their casket. None of their celebration is about their achievements, the car they drove, or the house they got. It's about the family, the people they surrounded themselves with, and how they lived, and the character, and who they became. So now there's this new age response. 
that many of you have heard language around this. Uh, it's, it's really called self-approval or self-validation. And I'm not against self-love. We, every single person in this room, you, you are worth self-love because the God of all creation loves you. But it's about the position and the perspective that we establish self-love. Does your love for yourself come before God's love for you? Because those are not the right order. It sounds like this. Only you can bestow significance on yourself. You have to decide that you are valued. And it doesn't matter what anyone else thinks. You be true to yourself. You find your own truth. All the sociologists, the psychologists, or the philosophers that I've read, they explain how this is impossible. Because we are relational beings. You can't possibly walk around saying, the whole world thinks that I'm a monster. It doesn't matter. I love myself. It just does not add up. So you know what that means? It means this. Only if you get love, approval, and esteem from someone you esteem will you get self-esteem. This makes a lot of sense when you start thinking about one of those key descriptors for a person whose life is spiraling out of control in, in late adolescence and early adulthood. What do we say? She's got daddy issues. Because one of the two key people who she should receive esteem from is not giving her the love, approval, or esteem. But just because we can't self-validate does not mean that we don't need validation. Let me give you a couple of examples of why we need validation. You don't ever want to hear or feel the jets kicking up on the tarmac and over the intercom, the pilot says, welcome to Southwest. We'll be taking off as soon as I finish reading page 10. You don't ever want to, the anesthesia to be setting in and you overhear your surgeon say to the nurse, I almost passed my medical exam last week. The validation is important. And the Bible tells us that the reason why we need validation is because of the problem called sin. Every single one of us is imperfect Every single one of us has the insecurities that come with sin. And the Bible calls sin missing the mark. You see, God created us to have a purpose. And most of the time, we live below that purpose. I know I have. And so God says, I am going to help you transcend. I'm going to help you meet your potential. So last week, Eric kicked into this whole contrast between the old covenant and the new covenant. And he explained that it's not a mere legal contract. It's a relational contract between God and humanity. And God is saying, I'm going to help you. A covenant is the permanent whole self-giving of two parties to a cause that is mutually beneficial. So in Deuteronomy, God tells them, hey, here's the covenant. Here's the terms. All you have to do is X, Y, and Z. And guess what? I'm going to bless you and I'm going to help you prosper and you're going to emerge as the nation among nations. So God provides Moses in the book of Exodus with the Ten Commandments and these are the legal contract that's written on stone that helps them navigate. It's the instruction for how they would interact and meet God's expectations. And part of the caveat of this whole deal was God said, okay, you guys are going to make mistakes. 
You already have. So anytime that you sin, you're going to have to make a blood sacrifice as a way to make repentance for the the mistake that you've made. So in other words, anytime that you act like death, you have to give something of life. But the commands of of the Old Covenant we're always about informing God's people on how to live. It was this external commitment. Hey, here's these rules. I want you to follow them. And I want them to change you from the outside in. The people of Israel should have been led to this conclusion. Oh, wow. All these commands lead to a fruitful life. I can see that God has, he has the best intentions for me, better intentions for me than I have for myself. I will submit my will and desires to his. I'm going to be loving because he loves me. Maybe you've seen uh, the breakup with Jennifer Aniston and Vince Vaughn. They're in this knockdown, dragout fight. Uh, he's deadbeat boyfriend, and she says, it's not that I want you to do the dishes. It's that I want you to want to do the dishes. And God is screaming through the Ten Commandments, it's not that I want you to just not sin. It's that I want you to want not to sin. So Israel, they miss God's intention for internal change from an external covenant. And here's how I would explain the contrast between God created the old covenant, the Ten Commandments, to be transformational. And then Israel did the very thing that you and I would do if we were given the Ten Commandments, and we would turn them into transactional. So the very few times that the people of Israel actually followed the Ten Commandments, they became self-righteous. They said, look at me. I've aced it. I'm my own salvation. And then anytime they would fail, they would sweep it under the rug. They would just throw another animal on the altar, let the blood spill, and they're revalidated as if it never happened. And this occurred over and over and over And God wasn't surprised. About halfway through God's commitment to them with the Old Covenant, Jeremiah, the prophet, records God saying, the days are coming when I will make a new covenant with the people of Israel. You're not holding it up. I got to change this. I will put my law in their minds and I'll write it on their hearts. I will be their God. They will be my people. So God says, okay, this isn't working. You can't keep up. So what I'm going to do, this is the new covenant is I'm going to fulfill your commitment to me for you. Do you see how uninvolved we are in the new covenant? The reason why it works is because it does not rely on your performance or my performance. Let me tell you about whose performance it relies on. In 2 Corinthians 5.21, it says, God made him sin, he who knew no sin, to be sin so that we we could become the righteousness of God. So God made Jesus sin, the ultimate sacrifice, he who knew no sin. So he was perfect. And because he was perfect, he could take all of our sin. So what happens when we become the righteousness of God is that God looks at Jesus as if he did everything we did. And then he looks at us as if we did everything Jesus did. Jesus becomes our validation. Remember when we talked about esteem? You only get it if you get the love, approval, and esteem from someone you esteem. The love, approval, and esteem from the one who deserves all the esteem, he has plenty to give. You will not be insecure. 
you will not be left wanting if you find your security in him. Because all of the laws are about him. Have you ever seen the, the Marvel or DC movies? And you're just like, oh my gosh, everybody's just making the whole world go to crap. And then what happens? They are perfectly queued up for a hero. I believe that God gave us the benefit of the doubt. He hoped for us to succeed more than we could succeed for ourselves in the old covenant. And we messed up over and over and over. And what that did is it queued us up for the perfect hero. Let me tell you some stories about Jesus. Because what he did is he made Christianity different than any other religion. He made it so that we don't have to achieve our status in God's kingdom. Instead, we receive our status in God's kingdom. So in the Old Covenant, all these stories take place. You've got uh, Joseph. He ends up being betrayed. He ends up getting imprisoned by the ones who betrayed him. And then after he's sold into slavery and climbs through the political ranks, what does he do? He saves those who betrayed him. And then you go to David. He's small. He's baby Brady. But he shows the courage to risk his life to fight the giant to save his people. And then you've got, you've got Moses. He says, you know what? I am petrified. He stands there, knees knocking, and he says, God, give, give them one more chance. And he saves the people of Israel. And then you've got Jonah. He says, you know what? The storm is going to take the ship. What I'm going to do is throw myself into the stormy seas so that the, the sailors in the ship can survive. And he saves them. And we can read all of these stories and we can think to ourselves, I've got to be this courageous. I've got to be this strong. And the weight of all of that pressure, it will crush you. If we read the Bible without the focus of Jesus being our salvation, you become one of two people. And I've been both. Either you think that you're able to achieve every list and requirement in the commandments, and you become one of the most destructive Christians that you could be with a superiority complex walking around with your chin in the air. Or you look at that list and you go, oh my gosh, there's no way I can achieve all of those things. There's no way I can be Moses, Jonah, David. The list goes on. And you get crushed and you say, all right, I'm done with religion. I'm running away. And most people that do, they come to Dayton, Ohio. <laughs> or you can read the stories of the Old Testament as if Jesus is all of them. Because Jesus is the new covenant. It's all about him. And we read them like this. I'm Jesus guess what? I'm going to be Joseph. I've been betrayed. I've been in prison. And when I rose up, I saved all of those who betrayed me, didn't he? And then when it comes to David, he says, you know what? I'm not just going to save you at the risk of my life. I'm going to save you at the cost of it. Oh, and then with Moses, you've got Jesus there. He's sitting on the cross and he's taking all of God's wrath He's like, Jonah, throw me off the boat. I will fall into the sea of divine wrath. 
and take it all for you so you can be saved. Jesus is our validation. I want to go back to 2 Corinthians 3. Paul says, Are we beginning to commend ourselves again? Or do we need, like some people, letters of recommendation to you or from you? You yourselves are a letter written on our hearts. You are a letter from Christ, which can feel like a lot of pressure. But you are the result of our ministry written not with ink, but with the spirit of the living God, not on tablets of stone, but on tablets of human hearts. Paul says, you show that you are a letter from Christ. What he's doing here is he's making this beautiful contrast between tablets of stone and tablets of human hearts. Because before in the Old Covenant, the only authority from God to people was the authority that was written on those stones. And Paul's saying, no, no, no. We don't need letters anymore. Because of Christ, you are the letter. Which means... A letter is the will or the expression of its author. How crazy is it to think that I could stand here, that you could sit there, that we could walk around the world knowing that when we are in obedience with God, we are an expression of him to the world. And man, does that feel like a lot of pressure sometimes. And it shouldn't be taken lightly, but I'm going to tell you why. Being a letter for Christ is so freeing. Because this is how God writes on our hearts. This is how he shows that you are a letter from Christ. He says that we are his letters when we finally do the internal work of accepting what he's already done. We don't need approval from others or things. And maybe you're going, oh my gosh, I have been chasing that. I've been stuck in that hamster wheel this whole time. You're telling me that Jesus did all the work for me? All you have to do is accept that the God of all power has earned your status in his kingdom. And by the way, tattoos, for the most part, are permanent. Just like this truth, just like the mark that God puts on your heart, is you cannot lose what you didn't earn. You can't. You cannot lose what you did not earn. But here's why a letter is significant. It's only significant if it's got the right content and depending on who its author is. But the good news for us, we don't have to make any of that up. Christ is the author of the letter. And what do we know about a letter from Christ? It's going to be all about him. Because the new covenant was never about what we could do or how we could perform or achieve to be where we need to be in order to have place in God's kingdom. But instead, God came down, he put himself on the cross and gave us the gospel. And the reason why this works better than the old covenant is because the old covenant was working from the outside in. But now, the new covenant is from the inside out because it requires the humility to say, I couldn't do it on my own. Ephesians 2 says, For by grace you have been saved through him, not of yourselves, it is a gift of God, not of works that any of us, that any of us can boast. So, we don't have to fixate on our achievements anymore. 
A letter is about the achievements that Christ has made. I'll tell you, when I think about what it means to be a letter for Christ, to be uh, equipped by the Spirit of the living God, I use this mental image that I, I learned a while back um, about the Spirit of the living God. So very early in Genesis, God describes himself as spirit hovering over the waters. And the, and the Hebrew language used this word called ruach. And ruach essentially means animation, the animating, the animating force. So think of a tree that you see blowing in the wind. You see the leaves move, but you, you don't know why. You don't see what's moving them. The Bible describes God's Holy Spirit as the force behind each one of us that animates us. The tree leaves don't move on their own. The wind moves them. We don't speak for ourselves as letters of Christ, but Christ speaks for us. And a letter about Christ is from Christ. And the only way you can become a letter about Christ is if you are willing to admit that you couldn't achieve your status on your own. And now God can write, not on tablets of stone, but on tablets of the human heart. I also got to tell you guys, there's a dynamic to being a letter for Christ. It should not be underwhelming. It should not be left wanting enthusiasm. It should not be like Christmas vacation receiving the letter of the Jelly of the Month Club. It is so much bigger than I remember uh, a couple of months back, my wife and I, we received a letter in the mail and uh, they said, hey, we overestimated how much you needed to pay in your escrow account. Here's $2,000. Yeah. You're like, that is an awesome letter to receive. And the letter that we are is because of what Christ has done that he's paid it in full. So this is what I think a letter for Christ looks like. It looks like Galatians 2.20. I have been crucified with Christ. Therefore, I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. So if we want to be a community, when we walk out of here, we're like thousands of letters flowing into the city of Dayton. And every single one of those letters says, not I, but Christ. Not I, but Christ. Not I, but Christ. One of my favorite things that I do almost every morning, and on the mornings that I don't, I feel it by the end of the day. Before my feet hit the ground, my wife doesn't even know this. She's probably sleeping, and I just I say to myself, Christ in me, Christ through me, Christ all around me. And I do that three times. And that is the only way that I can verify that I'm a letter of his going out into the world. This is the new covenant. It is just all about him, and he's our validation, so we don't have to be. You can never earn your status, and you never have to worry about losing what you never earned because it was received, not achieved. Amen? Amen. I'm going to pray us out. God, I thank you so much that you are the achiever, that you are the validator. Be in us. Be through us. Be all around us. You are the name above all names because your name is about grace. Let us be inside out people changed by your love, nothing that we have done for ourselves, but only what you have done for 
us. And bless every person in here as they get ready to stand up, walk out, and be letters flooding the city of Dayton. Letters of Christ for Christ. And it is in Jesus' name that we pray. And everybody said, Amen. I want you to join us back next week as we continue the, the New Covenant Review with Eric Fleming. Boat shoes, Eric Fleming.